Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey there, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is one of your co-hosts, Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my better pod half, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. I'm really excited about the topic we are discussing today. It's a big one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have all noticed, but pretty much we call them quarters. But like once a quarter, Tara and I tackle like a big, big event or big case. And that's what we're doing. And this time we're going to be talking about the Zodiac Killer. We are. This case has been very interesting for me in the research stage because I was like, I fucking know the Zodiac Killer. I've watched the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal several hundred times, <laughs> but doing this research, I have fallen down so many rabbit holes and have loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. It's been very interesting. If you want to hang out with us on our social medias, you can do so by using the handle at Three Spooked Girls. That's going to be for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to have more of an in-depth interaction with us and other spooksters, I would highly recommend you go to our pop-in Facebook group. It is Three Spook Girls Official. We've been hosting watch parties throughout the quarantine. Tara and I both had one to celebrate our birthdays, which was really fun. Been watching a ton of ghost adventures in there. Mm-hmm. The last round was, they had, I don't know who added those to the watch Facebook watch party, but those were freaking amazing. Yeah, there were some good episodes on there. Yeah, I was really excited. So you, if you definitely want to like come hang out with us, there's so many great things like... People post pictures of their dogs and their cats and their mugs and their tumblers and all the fun things. And, you know, you're always telling us what you're drinking. So we love hanging out with you there. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by joining us on Patreon.com. If you want to take a look before you head over there on our Instagram account, Tara has made these beautiful, wonderful little highlights that really just everything you need to know about our show, contacting us from like the P.O. Box to Patreon is on there. I believe it even has like our email address is somewhere in that mix. No, Tara's shaking her head no. I'm making shit up now. But... (laughs) That's not too hard to find. You can definitely find all of that by going to our link tree, which is in the show notes. And this is a very exciting day because Tara knows that I love to like make shit, right? And I have really handled a lot of our merch design. And today we are launching our new... I'm so excited. It's our new line and it's all Zodiac related. So if you want to get an exclusive Three Spooked Girls Zodiac Killer Pin Pal shirt, mug, I don't know what else I put up there. Yeah, shirt, mug, tank tops, those kind of things. You can definitely do so at our online shop that we have. That's going to be linked for you in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Definitely want to check it out. If you are part of the Spooks or Swag Patreon tier or higher, 
and you've been that for three or more months, you will actually be receiving one of these. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't already told Tara what one you want, tell Tara. (laughs) Please do so. Yes. And if not, then I will just let you guys know we will probably just default to unisex and then either black or white because it's like there's an awesome tie-dye one that I'm getting and it's in transit as we're recording this. It's pretty awesome. But we know everybody doesn't like that kind of thing. So we're keeping it. So if I don't hear from you, we're going to keep it neutral. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep it neutral. You got about uh, a week from when this is airing to let me know because that's when I'm going to be starting to ship out all the things, all the things. Yeah. And so if you are interested in supporting the show and you want to be that tier, you can definitely check it out at patreon.com slash three spooked girls. All our tiers are there. It's super easy to sign up. And so how that tier is going to work is this is the first quarter we're doing. It. So next quarter, I already have the thing planned. Tara knows what it is. <laughs> I've actually tweaked it so she doesn't know 100% what it is, but it's going to be amazing. So each quarter, our Spookster swag tier will get a t-shirt or anyone that tier and up. So yeah, definitely go check it out. I am so excited for you guys to see this. It's such a good design. And once we started getting some of you guys at that tier, we, you know, we made sure we planned it. So most of you guys that are there now are either getting it in June because that's your third month or in July. So super, super exciting. And if you know, because we know times are hard and stuff, if you can't support the show that way, you can always purchase a shirt Mm -hmm. or other Zodiac accessory through our merch store as well. Whatever works for you. Yes. And there's actually some really cool new stuff on our merch store. I opened up for our basic logo. There are fanny packs now. (gasps) I I know. I didn't even know this, guys. I'm just finding out. (laughs) Yeah. I did it on Saturday. I'm sorry, but I forgot to tell you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So there's other things. There's right now, since the world is uncertain and you may have to go out and cover your face, there are three spook girls masks. So you can definitely check those out. It's just our logo. You can get it in black or I think black and white and then just white, I think. So yeah, definitely check those out. There's just fun things. And that's just, like Tara said, another way to support the show. But then you also get some really cool like stuff to wear. Yeah. So that's all we have for our little business up front. So Kate and I were talking about what the drink should be. And since we're talking about the Zodiac Killer, Kate happened to mention to me that, you know, or reminded me, I should say, that Tara and I are the same Zodiac sign. Though I will say that like I'm on a cusp. You're also really close to a cusp. Yeah. Like, not on it, but, like, really close to it. So we are doing the Taurus. There was this website that was, like, a cocktail that should you should be drinking based on your Zodiac sign. So ours was a classic gin gimlet. So I don't know that I like gin. I don't know if I've ever drank gin. I've had it, and I'll probably be like, oh, yeah, I do, or I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it's, like, one of those alcohols that I always, I'm like, I don't know what I like if I like that. Right. And then someone will be like, do you like this? And I'll be like, yes, I like that. And they're like, then you like gin. And I'm like, oh, okay. But then I, the next time I have this conversation, I will completely forget. Right. Someone document it for me. <laughs> so ours is the classic gin gimlet. But if you want to know what yours is, we're going to post it tomorrow for the drink. We're going to post the article that's on decor and you can see what it is based on yours. And some of them look really delicious. Nice. Well, that brings us to our promo break time, and we will be back in a couple of minutes after these words from some other awesome podcasters. Woo. Questions still linger. Is Dice Tower Theater a high fantasy audio drama with a narrator or a heroic audiobook? 
with a full cast, sound effects, and original score, can be considered an actual play podcast when you never hear the fall of the dice or the conversation at the table. Listen to Dice Tower Theater on your favorite podcasting platform. And no matter what we are called, we hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. I'm Ross, and what's the crack? And I'm Rock. And this is our podcast, I Understood That Reference. We cover all corners of the pop culture spectrum, including movies, comics, which is my favorite, games, and everything in between. With our own unique mix of games, trivia, and little insight, all wrapped up in Irish accents. And of course, the tin whistle. <laughs> so get up them stairs and download this podcast into your ears. I'm Ross. And I'm Rob. And this has been I Understood That Reference. Available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podchaser, and whenever else decent podcasts are available. Yay! Welcome back from that quick promo break. I hope you enjoyed hearing about some other really great podcasts. So I'm going to tell you about how we're going to structure the topic of the Zodiac, give you some kind of like a outline of what you can expect. So how we're going to break it down is we're actually going to make this into a multi-part, more than two, most likely three. We're thinking three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Um, but so we're going to drop the first one today. It's going to be this one. And the next one is going to be the Zodiac and the murders. And we're going to talk investigation and sometimes the lack thereof. And then the other part after one and two is going to be about the Zodiac in the media, some documentaries. It's going to be some really great information. Like There's a really cool history channel docuseries that I'm in the middle of. So it's going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But today is obviously the first one. And we're going to go ahead and drop number two for you on Friday. Yes, yes. So we'll go through the first two attacks mm-hmm. and also some of the ciphers. And we'll be kind of ping-ponging back and forth. So that's also different. Normally, it's just Jessica or I taking a whole part. But we are teaming up. So this is a little bit different of a structure. If you like it, feel free to let us know because we're thinking it's going to work out pretty good for this bigger of a topic. So, yeah, let us know what you guys think, too. Yeah. And with that, I'm just going to hand it over to Tara so she can tell you all about it. Okay, we are going to start on December 20th, 1968. David Fairday, who was 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16, they were out on their first date this night. So originally, they were going to go to a Christmas concert at Hogan High School, but of course, per teenage shit, they had a change of plans. That evening, they went and visited some friends. They went to like one of their houses. They went to a restaurant for a bite to eat or whatever. And then they went and did what most teens did during this time, and they went out to their area's lover's lane. I mean, I don't know if you can call it a lane. It's more of like a turnout. (laughs) Right? I know. But that's what they're saying. So I'm going to at them who called it a lover's lane because it's definitely not. It's definitely like a small little like gravel turnout area. Which, by the way, on Google Maps, it is known as the Zodiac's killing spot. Oh, God. It's like pinpointed. Of course it is. This turnout was located on Lake Herman Road in Vallejo, California. All of these murders and attacks will happen in California, in case you were not aware. 
So the couple arrived there about 10, 15 p.m., and sadly, like we've kind of already chit-chatted about, this is where they were murdered. Just a little over an hour after their arrival at about 11.20 p.m., a resident in the area, her name was Stella, she found their bodies, and she stated that, quote, no cars were going in either direction while she was on the road. When she arrived at the scene, the headlights picked up the car, and she observed a boy, and he had looked like he had fallen out of the open door. The girl was lying on her side facing the the road. She had a purple dress on and looked well-dressed. She saw only one car at the scene. It looked like a Rambler, grayish in color, and had a chrome rack on the top. She states that she drove 60 or 70 miles an hour en route to Benicia to report the incident. When she saw the police car, she honked her horn and blinked her lights to attract the attention of the police officers, end quote. It's thought that during the attack that Betty was trying to exit the vehicle through the passenger door and David was right behind her. David was shot in the lower part of his ear, so his head, and this would cause brain damage, of course. And he collapsed perpendicular to the right rear wheel, and his body position is noted to have been at a 90-degree angle and facing southwest. Now, depending on what you read and whatnot, Betty either decided to run or was told to run by the Zodiac at this point. The Her deciding to run would make more sense because there's somebody with a gun at you, that type of thing. But she was shot five times in the back on the right side of her body, and her body would... I guess, go down. I don't know how else to say that. It would be 28 to 30 feet from the vehicle when they arrived. That's where they found her. Captain Daniel Pitta arrived approximately at 11.28 p.m. Betty would be pronounced dead at the scene, and David was actually still breathing when they responded. But sadly, he would be pronounced dead upon arrival at Vallejo Hospital at 12.05. So first and foremost, I want to say I've actually been to this location, not on purpose, Tara and I have a mutual friend named Sophie, and she and I used to take frequent road trips to the Bay Area, and one time we drove down this road for shits and gigs. I don't know why. (laughs) But, like, just drove past it. Like, I didn't realize what it was. It's about two miles off the 680, and like I mentioned earlier... It's actually on Google Maps. You can find the exact spot. And if you watch the BuzzFeed Unsolved, Ryan and Brent go. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And Ryan is being a little baby. Clearly, it's the wind, Ryan. Anyway, so the weird thing about... I want you to like kind of put this in your mind with the Zodiac. A lot of the killings had police presence right before the murders. So one of the Benicia policemen had been driving through from Vallejo. And this road was actually used mostly by people who commuted from Vallejo to Benicia. If you know that area, you can go like the 80 that way. But this would definitely cut off time. And maybe that way... You wouldn't have, depending on it, like the way you were going in, you wouldn't have to take the bridge. Gotcha. They had just driven by like 20 minutes before because the police officer, like Tara mentioned, who got there first, Officer Petta, he literally had just driven by. They had been on a drug bust that night. And I thought it was really funny because they're like, yeah, it was a big drug bust for the 60s. We got a pound and a half. (laughs) And I'm like, a pound and a half? Of marijuana. (laughs) <laughs> that's not okay good for you back like good for you gallon size baggie but th- they did joke that back in the day that was considered a big bust 
So what you have to understand is at the time, Benicia was a very small town. And most people today don't even realize it's a city or a town. Like, let me put this. If you're from Northern California or you have driven to the Bay Area on the 680, right before you go over the Benician Bridge to, like, head over into, like, Walnut Creek area, there's, like, billboards on the side of the road. That's mainly about wine for the last four years, but... (laughs) whatever that's the Benicia area so it's right there it's along kind of like the ocean is right there it's actually not a bad thing there is like a oil refinery nearby so it's not always the most pleasant smelling what are you gonna do yeah it's a small town so and and you have to take the fact that this is in 1968 and it was smaller back then and their police department actually didn't deal with many homicides in fact, I watched this documentary and this very cute old man now, he is super adorable. And like, he says like, oh, we didn't have very many homicides. Other than this, we solved them all. Mm-hmm. It's like tiny. They weren't very well equipped to handle like this type of a murder. They were more used to like the murders were like a spouse killed the other one or very like cut and dry, like drug deal gone bad or something like that. They were not equipped for a serial killer at all. So basically what happens is, how do I put this? It's really hard to say because they didn't work the scene well. They weren't using like the proper techniques. Like there was a lot of contamination is what I found with a lot of their evidence. We'll talk a little later. People would just pick things up and like be like, oh, what's this? A bullet casing and like pick it up with their hand, not necessarily like pick it up with a glove. They didn't do searches. But I think the most interesting part about this particular one is that the police had driven by about 20 minutes earlier from when this crime would have taken place. The way they think this happened is the guy drove in from the Benicia way and then drove out through Vallejo or came in from Vallejo and left back towards Vallejo. And then you have the other aspect that like, The Benicia police were the first on the scene and they had started the whole discovery process. And then the call was made to the Solana County Sheriff's Department and then they came in and took over. And so you probably have to realize that at this point in time, one, there was a big pride issue within police departments where departments kept things really close to them. They didn't want to share. It was also because of, well, one, there was like a lack of technology thing, but like we'll get into that in a little bit later. Some specifics I'm going to let Tara talk about like some of the stuff that they found at the scene. Yeah, they had found 10 expended bullet casings there on the scene and one was in the car on the passenger side that they had theorized perhaps was like a warning shot because it went through the window and all of that stuff. There was no fresh tire or footprints found in the dirt. And then in the documentary, it's going to be in the sources page for you that we both watched the this is the Zodiac talking or speaking, whatever the fuck. And they said there had been no none of those prints or anything because of how cold it was. Now, the temperature that night was 22 degrees Fahrenheit or negative five Celsius, which in Northern California, that's pretty cold. I mean, that's pretty cold if you think about it either way. Well, they're pretty close to water, too. So that would drive that temperature down. Right. They ended up recovering the rest of them, the bullets, five from Betty and then two from the car and then one being from David. And then what's problematic and probably could have been who knows what someone kicked it, whatever. The last two weren't found. Mm. Which actually leads me into my next point is like there was a lack of knowledge on how to work a crime scene here. For instance, in today 
the crime scene would minimally be worked for like 24 hours. You'd have people out there in proper attire. They would be like looking through the area, looking for hair, looking for like sweat, skin, blood, whatever. They'd be taking like earth samples and like so that they could also get what kind of bugs were out so they could get like proper time of death, things like that. None of that. This crime scene was worked for about four hours. And then they just packed it all up and like left. And then you have to realize that like there's stuff that probably the like Benicia police picked up and then never turned over to Solano County. Not I'm not saying out of like spite, but like I'm saying this like, you know, you listen to them and they throughout that documentary that Tara and I watched a lot of times they would say things like, oh, I just didn't think it was relevant to put in there. So really this particular crime scene, it was just like I think they rushed through it. I think it's one of these things that like the Zodiac had really great timing because like what we I mean, not for his victims, but the fact that like 20 minutes before a cop rolled through the same area where he committed a crime. We're talking if the Zodiac had showed up 20 minutes earlier, would have most likely been seen killing two teenagers. That's a theme throughout this life with this man. Right. So and basically at this point, the police do another bad thing is they kind of announce that he's like a crazed killer. And this obviously instills fear in people. And fear does a couple of things. Fear keeps people from talking when they should talk. Also, the other thing that they're thinking is that at this point in time, the sheriffs who had just gone back to Vallejo or whatever, those people, they're thinking that the Zodiac was not far behind them, like to only be 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I honestly just think like it was a small town. I mean, look at it like this. If you're killing people and you pick a small town... I mean, unless you pick a small town where there's only like a thousand people and everyone knows everyone and and you do it in the town square, this is kind of a great way to disguise what he's doing because he's almost ensuring that this investigation would at least end up improperly done. Because if you don't know what to do, you don't know what to do. Like, they didn't know, like, should I call in the FBI? Should we just work this like a regular homicide? And especially at this point in time, no one had taken credit for these murders. So it's not like they knew it was going to be a serial killer. For all they knew, it was somebody like a drifter. Robbery gone wrong, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they had no idea. So and they kind of were like trying to classify it as that. But then July 4th happens. Yes. So we're going to jump to July 4th of 69. And interesting enough, this attack happened just four minutes away from where the first attack was. So this would occur at Blue Rock Springs Park. The victims were Darlene Farron, 22, and Michael McGough, 19. Now, similar kind of situation, and you'll see parallels throughout these different attacks. This was another couple. They were out on a date that night. But something interesting about this couple, though, Darlene was actually married and not to Michael. He was her, quote, boyfriend. He says in an interview in the same documentary, we're probably going to talk about a lot, sorry. But he said that her husband was a great guy and they knew each other and kind of knew what was going on and that he was planning to marry Darlene. I just like... I have issues with that because it's like unless he and Darlene had like a true open marriage or like maybe they got married of convenience before. It's just (laughs) he was like, yeah, I knew he was a cook down at this restaurant. We're like really great friends. And like he knew I loved her and was going to marry her. And I'm like, 
Okay. Yeah. Not judging. Do you, boo? Yeah, do your thing, but okay. Not what I expected to hear, especially during the 60s. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, it is the 60s. Free love. Well, yeah. It's like... It's kind of both. It's like that borderline. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, he also mentions that she was such a great person and that, yeah, she kind of had a bit of a reputation. But, you know, it wasn't true. Like, she was, like, a really good woman and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can be out and do your thing and still be a good woman. Mm -hmm. Like, people need to stop classifying women who have sex as bad people. True, true. But we don't promote cheating. Thank you. I mean, unless you have an open arranged marriage. Yes. Yes. If you both know and you're consenting, you live your best life. You do yeah. that. But enough about enough about that. I just wanted to give a little backstory. So they had originally had plans to go to a diner named Mr. Ed's, but that shifted pretty quickly. Parallels again, but a little different. But it later came out that the reason they had left was because, according to Michael, Darlene had said that they were being followed by some man and it was creeping her out. And she's like, we need to get gone kind of situation. Mm hmm. Now, once they got there to their area, they parked in. He said that a car came up and just sat there for a bit and then left. And also in regards to this, Michael had said, quote, D turned the lights and motor off and had the radio playing. They were just there a very short time, a few minutes, and three cars pulled into the parking lot where they were. They were apparently young kids and they heard some laughing and carrying on and a few firecrackers were set off. But then the three vehicles left within a short time. This was a short time, a few minutes. Shortly after this, about five minutes before the shooting occurred, a vehicle pulled into the lot coming from the direction of Spring Road and Vallejo. The driver turned the lights off of the car and pulled around to the left or east side of the car, approximately six to eight feet away, and sat there for a minute. That would have made me go the fuck away. I'm just saying. I've been like, "Mm, bye. Yeah, I would have left. There would have been like a we're going right now. Yeah, but that's not how it went. He said he asked Dee if she knew who it was, and she stated, quote, oh, never mind. And then, like I said, the driver would eventually leave. But if you're familiar with this case, you know that he comes back. And it said that he had one of those massive flashlights that has like a handle on it and stuff and was also armed with a mag light. A mag light. There we go. Thank you. And also armed with a nine millimeter weapon. And Michael had said that they thought it was a cop because obviously if you see like gun and flashlight, that does make sense. So he said he went to grab his ID to, you know, be like, oh, here you go, officer, whatever. But before he could do that, the shots began. And he claims that because of the sound was like non-existent, basically, he thought the Zodiac had a silencer. Now, of course, there's conflicting things to this, so we'll get to that in a minute. But Michael said that he dove into the back seat and he tried to get out and said once the Zodiac heard him yelling for like help, that he came back and shot two more times, you know, shooting them both again. And then after that, he says that he took that the Zodiac took off like a bat out of hell and there's more conflicting shit. Spoilers. But first, let's talk about a possible witness. His name was George Bryant. He said that, quote, at approximately midnight, he heard what appeared to be a gunshot. This was louder than any of the firecrackers. A short time later, he heard what appeared to be another gunshot. After another short pause, he heard rapid fire of what appeared to be gunshots. He then heard a car taking off at super speed and it burned rubber and was squealing its tires and sped along the road. He wasn't sure of its direction of travel. He didn't double check as it was the 4th of July and thought somebody was just celebrating. I mean, I can say that, like, growing up in the country, people shot off guns, so I can see that. I can, but it's just, I don't know. I guess to me, it just seems like a lot of gunshots to be like, eh, never mind. But I mean, I don't know. Mm. I don't know things. I don't know things. But anyway, a thing to point out with this statement from him talking is 
Obviously, if there was a silencer, he wouldn't have heard any of that from that far away. Right. But the police think that the loudness of the first shot, you know, kind of messed with Michael's hearing, like deafened him a bit. So it, to his perspective, it made it sound like they were all quieter than what they actually were, which makes sense. Yeah. But to also add to the inconsistencies, we know the Zodiac loves to taunt the police, or if you don't, now you know. (laughs) Later, it would be talked about by the Zodiac in a letter, and we'll go through some of those letters later, that on one of the letters to the San Francisco Examiner on August 4th, so, you know, later, he said, quote, The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat and then the floor in back, thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly as to not draw attention to my car. And Michael and Darlene were both taken to Kaiser Hospital. Of course, you can figure out he would survive the attack since he was in that documentary. But sadly, Darlene would be pronounced dead upon arrival to the hospital at 1238 a.m. And then also to note about the crime scene, to kind of segue back to Jessica, there were nine shots total fired. Seven were found next to the right side of the car and two in the back passenger floorboard. So that does coincide with Michael's, you know, statement on what happened. I think it's interesting, like when we talk about serial killers is to talk about like the time between. And this was like 196 days. Yeah, it's a long time. It is a long time. And that like, That stood out to me. Like, I didn't really, like, write down the numbers, but, like, because of how long this was, this was, like, seven months, seven, eight months where, like, this person didn't escalate. So, basically, like, where Tara was, we were at the point in time where the shooting has happened. At that time, Officer, or he was a plainclothes detective working that night in, like, a plane car. Um, His name was Officer Ed Rust, and his partner was John Lynch. And they were working the late shift, which was about like 3 p.m. to 12 a.m. type thing, which (laughs) when you realize the time of this, you're like, oh, man, they were almost off. They were in like the old downtown area of Vallejo. A little bit before 12, they received a call that there were gunshots. Ed kind of turns to John and says, hey, do you want to do you want us to take this? He's like, I'm young. I can handle it. And John immediately goes, nah, it's probably just fireworks. But at 1210, dispatcher Nancy Slove received the first call about this incident. Nancy would describe the caller as a young white woman, probably in her late teens, 16 to 19. And she seemed very agitated or excited or like shook up. And she was saying that at the Blue Rock Springs parking lot area, there had been these shootings. So she put out on dispatch and the first officer that was close there was actually like a juvenile officer and his name was Richard Hoffman and he had actually been at the Blue Rock Springs parking lot in this area 30 minutes prior to the murders. His job that night was to drive around and make sure like underage people weren't drinking and so this particular area being a hot spot for teenagers to go to could lead to like group activities like drinking and doing drugs so he was like doing drive-bys throughout the night and he had just been there which again we're talking about the police presence and like how close it was. I mean, so now if you're looking at like traits, this is another trait is that this killer is waiting till police come and then leave. 
So I can only assume that this person has some sort of working knowledge of how police work or is just very fucking lucky. So Richard Hoffman was the first to get there and he gets there and he sees uh, Michael sitting outside the car and he like goes up and like immediately realizes that he needs like he checks on Darlene, but realizes that Mike needs CPR or first aid. So he starts to help him. And then at this point, Officer Ed Russ and John Lynch were like, I guess we should go because it's actually out on dispatch. And they get there and they find Hoffman administering CPR. And then they basically lift up Michael and they find one of the shell casings. Like when the EMT takes him away. Hoffman rode in the ambulance with Darlene. And this was like a weird thing. Like the first time I watched this part and I was like, it creeped out by it. But then I realized what he was saying because I listened to it in like half, like I had paused. But like he was saying, because essentially they were like, Hoffman, go with them so you can get statements. And so he jumped into the ambulance and then the interviewer asked Hoffman, like, did you, were you able to talk to her? And he basically is stating that, like, every time the EMT paramedic blew into her mouth, a piece of her bra fabric would flutter. So that means that she had been, like, punctured, like, down to her lungs. Right. In Robert Graysmith's book, it states that... Hoffman knew Darlene, but that wasn't true at all. Because this is like a conspiracy theory that out there is that allegedly it is true that Darlene and her husband had a like a house painting party, which I guess is a thing. I didn't realize it's a thing, but whatever. And they thought Hoffman was there at the party, but that's not true. Right. But as you can see at this point in time, like there's a reason when Darlene reached the hospital, she was pronounced dead on arrival. Like I mean, when they got there, she was still kind of conscious and speaking, but it was like Ed Russ says he like put his ear down to her to like talk to her and his like ear was basically at her mouth and he couldn't hear anything she was saying. So it wasn't good. And like we said, Michael had wounds and everything, but he actually survived. And in the documentary that we're talking about, this is the Zodiac speaking, they interview Michael and obviously this has affected him greatly. And no judgment. If you're almost killed by a serial killer and you turn to a life of drugs, I have no judgment for you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But he either looks like he has suffered some sort of like stroke or something that has incapacitated him because there's just something a little off. It makes me think he very well could have had permanent brain damage too, on top of everything. Right. That would be a huge factor. He was shot in the like the neck and it came out his jaw. Mm-hmm. And then again, I don't know what to base it off of because like he was described as really tiny, like he was a tiny person. In fact, the detectives at first like didn't trust Michael because of the fact that he was wearing like like a couple sweaters and like three pairs of pants. And when they asked him in the interview, like why what's going on? He's like, I was really small. And so I would wear like three pairs of pants so that people wouldn't think I was as skinny as I was. And I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's a plausible explanation. Mm -hmm. And he said that like Darlene knew and she didn't care that he was small, but it obviously bothered him. Yeah. The other thing is, is that like the Tara mentioned some inconsistencies at this point in time. What he tells detectives at the beginning or when he kind of can very much differs from what he tells them today. Like one of the things is that he believed that he was out there from anywhere from four to nine hours without anyone helping him. But 
they were picked up pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it felt like forever. Right. Forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just have to be the like, talk about the pain, but like the reality of that, it was only 20 to 30 minutes. But like how he speaks of it is not how someone would be like, it felt like it was four hours. Yeah. He talks it like it's facts. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, I was out there for literally like nine hours. No, like four hours. I was there for four hours and people were going by and like screaming and not helping me. And like none of that happened. Mm-mm. Michael kept saying that like he really wanted to marry her, but it was like interesting, like the way he would talk about it. Like Michael does a lot of talking up to something like he starts something and then all of a sudden he arrives at a completely definitive answer later. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the things that like Tara mentioned earlier about the chase, Michael never mentioned to investigators or like I don't know when he did, but it was not for, like, some time. Like, it was much later that they had no idea that he and Darlene were being chased around town. And he was like, we went to this restaurant and he was there. And then we would go, like, over to this, like, grocery or, like, this gas station. And this person was there. Like, we were being chased around, which is kind of like, why would you go to a secluded place then? That didn't make sense. Another thing he talks about is when the Zodiac Killer, like, pulls up next to him and he says to Darlene, like, do you know who that is? He first says, all she said about it was, don't worry about it. And then it was like this whole other story came out within, like, a matter of seconds that she said, don't worry about it. He's just jealous that his name is Richard, which I'm pretty sure that the reason he heard the name Richard is because Richard Hoffman was the first on the scene and he probably was like... This is Officer Richard Hoffman. And so, like, I feel like a lot of this was, like, melting. But, like, the way Michael talks about this is, like, he convinces himself. He goes, yeah, she said his name is Richard. Yes, his name is Richard. I know his name is Richard. That's the way he talks about it. And he says that that's all you need to know, but then went on to this whole Richard thing and then had this, like, description of him that he was mean-tempered, that Darlene knew he was the Zodiac killer, and he would kill her if she told anyone, including Michael, that he was the Zodiac killer. But, like, not 10 seconds before he said, you know, all she ever said about it was that he was jealous. So Michael changes his story. So, like, he tells Hoffman that he left in a hurry towards, like, what was it like the Blue Rock Spring Road in Vallejo? And he gets out of there in a bed out of hell, just like that one guy talked about. However, later in the interview, it's really interesting that Michael describes the car leaving slowly and silently, just like the Zodiac letter said he did. So I don't know which is true. Now, an interesting thing happens at this point in time. Um, remember our friend Nancy, the dispatcher? Nancy would receive another call that night. Mm-hmm. There was a 76 gas station on Tamalami in Vallejo. And at 1240, Nancy would receive a call. So this is what he said in a monotone voice, non-emotive. I want to report a double murder. If you go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park. So Nancy's like, oh, yes, we we got reportings that there's a gunshot there. We have officers out there. Can I get your name and location? He went on to say and said, you'll find the kids in a brown car and they were shot with a nine millimeter Luger. I also killed those kids last year. And then she was like, uh, the fuck? And like, I love the way she describes it. She's like, if you read my report, you won't understand. But this is what happened. He was like, good. Bye. 
and then hung up the phone. So it was low and drug out and it was creepy as fuck. Yeah. So this is the first that we have the Zodiac contacting authorities about this. This is where he claims the one on um, Lake Herman. And so it became crazy. Yeah. And what was noted when I was reading about that was that they actually didn't have the recording on this because they didn't. I'm not sure if it's that they didn't record at this point, because fun fact, the first 911 call in California was actually just the year prior in 1968. So one, they probably didn't have the technology and two, at a small location, they're probably going to be one of the last ones to get it. So I trust Nancy, but some people were like, well, she's reading it from memory and obviously she's still trying to do her job while he's talking. So this isn't probably 100% verbatim, you know, da, 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 da. But I think it's probably very uh, credible because I'm sorry, in the 60s and you're like, obviously I've never been a dispatcher, but it's like if someone calls and basically tells you they're a serial killer, that's going to stick out in your brain. I'm just saying. Right. This is also like she's already on high alert. Because someone has reported gunshots. They, like, reported that they found the bodies. Like, that kind of shit. So, like, she's probably, like, amped up. And this person is calling. And so she's trying to get as much information. And imagine being like, yes, sir. Like, let's... And I'm sure they took notes. Because from what I can tell now, dispatchers are trained to do that as well. Right. Take down vital information. And so when this person is like not acting, like the young girl who called in is acting, oh my God, someone was shot. They're bleeding in the parking lot. We need help. Like there's very like urgent. And then you have this. Very calm. She said it sounded like he was almost reading. Yeah, like he had rehearsed it. It was, I want to report a double murder. Like I would have paid so much more attention to that person. Yeah. And obviously like years later, this is still stuck out in her mind and there are some things i don't think you'll ever forget and this is probably one of those for her like she's never gonna forget the time the zodiac killer called her Mm-hmm. 100 this is also one of those situations where like the vallejo police came in and like was really doing their job but at the same time like they didn't really know like you're looking at the people who came onto the scene it was just like one of those things where i don't think anything necessarily went wrong i just think that there wasn't enough like in today's society or like in today's practices if they had been there they probably would have gotten a lot they recovered the shell casings and it was kind of weird because like officer russ said like when he got there like michael's wallet was like up on the back fender of the car or the trunk and he thought that was weird but then he realized that hoffman had done it so like essentially what it is is like you have inexperienced patrol officers out there just doing stuff <laughs> like touching things not really knowing what to do and i get it like and this is the truth like this is the first time they came up on the crime scene or not i shouldn't say but like this is the first zodiac killing where they came up and there was someone who they could save and so everything was put into making sure that michael got first aid and help and CPR. So I don't think like preserving the crime scene was their number one thing. But I do think that if these killings were happening in today, with all the technology we would have, we'd probably have a little bit more to go on. True. Yeah, no, for sure. And I can't remember his name, but one of the detectives even said that even from when he retired. And, you know, this was prior to 2007. So early 2000s, he's like, things would have maybe went a totally different way. Right. We're going to now jump to September 27th of that year. Or we're not? No, I was going to mention the ciphers at least. Oh, sorry. You're right. That's where I jumped to. I was like, no, we're not. (laughs) Tara's jumping other places. Sorry, guys. It's okay. 
So, yeah, like Jessica just mentioned, there is a few months again until the next attack. But meanwhile, the letters and the ciphers, as you may be familiar with, these have began. So what's interesting about these first three ciphers is they're all postmarked July 31st of 1969. The first one was sent to the Vallejo Times-Herald. The second was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle. And the third was sent to the San Francisco Examiner. The first letter is him, you know, writing that he's taking responsibilities for these first two or for these two shootings and giving a bunch of details about the victims and, you know, the weapons and going into more detail as far as like shots fired and the brand of the ammunition and stuff. So obviously that's going to catch their attention. And after this, the other two letters, they're basically all the same, and they include a cipher. And he had demanded that this be put in the newspaper, you know, on the front page, things like that, by August 1st. Interesting enough, with said cipher, this was actually solved by a married couple. And uh, it has some creepy shit that it says. I got really excited when I found out it was a married couple because, you know, they just were like, honey, do you think we could crack it? We need to sit down. Let's do it. (laughs) Like they turn their, I just feel like they turn their like kitchen table into like an investigate. Like they just. Yeah, that's totally how I see it. Just like all spread out in their kitchen. Yes. Have some coffee going. Do it. Well, they did. Yeah. And it said, quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise. And the I have killed the victims will become my slaves and I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. And then there's a long word that's like a bunch of fucking gibberish. So he said that. He said his mission was to kill people to make them his eternal slaves. He's crazy. A little bit. A little bit. And then also after said deadline, there was another letter sent to the examiner uh, postmarked on August 4th, 1969. Basically, the police were trying to get more information to prove that the person writing these was really the Zodiac. And this was actually the first time that the title The Zodiac is used. And it has that famous quote. That's the title of that documentary, because literally the first line says, this is the Zodiac speaking. So he named himself. It's true. So I pulled some quotes from that. He had said, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking for more details about the good times I had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leapt backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up in the backseat of the floor, thrashing about very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing, and this is this goes on to talk about, like, he drove out slow, things I read earlier, you know, and he goes on with those details and, you know, just some more little things that the general public would not know. 
He also talks about the first murders, and he says, Last Christmas in that episode, the police were wondering how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied by saying it was a well-lit night, and I could see silhouettes in the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight on the barrel of my gun. If you notice, in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at the wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light about three to six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get the front page coverage. So that gives you a taste on his personality, in case you were curious. <laughs> and with that, we're going to close the episode this week, or for not this week, today, because we discussed earlier there will be <laughs> one on Friday as well. Yes. So make sure you check back in for that on Friday. And also we'll have a patron select, so a Spookster patron select on Thursday. And you'll definitely want to check that out. So we'll catch you back here when that happens. Bye. Bye.